0: One day in the early 18th century, a German artist by the name of Steinberg was walking through the marketplace in his hometown and he was attracted to a remarkably beautiful face of a little gypsy girl. He was thinking about doing a painting of a dancing gypsy and she seemed to be just the perfect picture of what he wanted. And so he invited her to come and sit as a model for him. She, in her ignorance and superstition, knew nothing about the Christian faith. And she sat there in Steinberg's studio and her eyes roved about looking at canvases that had been started and not finished. And her eyes fell on Steinberg's starting of the painting of the crucifixion of Jesus. And she said to the artist, she said, why are they killing that man? He must be a very, very bad man. And Steinberg put his brush down and he said, Why no, my dear. He was not a bad man. He was the very best man that ever lived in all the world. And she said, Well, well, why are they killing him? And Steinberg said, Don't you know, that this is Jesus, and he is the Son of God. And he died for the sins of the world on that cross. And the little girl's eyes welled up with tears, and they came down her cheeks, and she looked at Steinberg, and she said, did he die for you? And Steinberg said, yes, he did. And she shook her head and said, you must love him very, very much. Well, the artist was convicted because he realized that his Christianity was only a casual thing, something of formality, an intellectual ascent. And later, through the help of some of the reformers, he came into a deep Christian faith, And as a result of it, he came back not only with the skill that he had as a great artist, but with a newfound faith in Jesus Christ that caused him to paint such a painting that those who have looked at it have still been amazed at the reality of the scene which he places before them. And beneath it, he put the little girl's question practically, I did this for you. What have you done for me? There was a young German count by the name of Nicholas von Sinsendorf. He was a gay thing who was on his way to Paris, France, to squander his money and to enter into all kind of frivolity. And he stopped one day in Dusseldorf and tried to look at the paintings that were there. And he saw Steinberg's painting of the crucifixion. And he read the inscription beneath it. And he, too, was convicted of the manner in which he was living. And so his life was transformed by looking at the crucified one. He gave his life to Christ, and he founded the Moravian Church. Last week, I listened to some tapes of Dr. Myron Augsburger, and I couldn't help but think about this man, Nicholas von Zinsendorf, and his great hymn, Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauties are, my glorious dress. In flaming worlds, in these arrayed with joy, shall I lift up my head. The great missionary movement that had been started because of his conversion when he looked at that painting of the cross. Our Lord Jesus Christ was, of course, arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas knew that he would be there praying And so the temple police had come and taken him away. He'd gone through the mockery of a religious trial at the high priest's palace. And Annas and Caiaphas had already agreed together that they were going to put him to death. But they had no power to have a man put all the way to death unless that death sentence was confirmed by a Roman official. And in order for the crucifixion to be carried out and in order for Jesus to be put to death, the Roman military governor, the prefect, who is Pontius Pilate, and by the way, in 1961, an Italian archaeologist by the name of uh, Antonio Frova, unearthed in Caesarea, a tablet that authenticates from archaeology the existence of Pontius Pilate. So there's no question about that anymore. Anyway, Jesus was brought into the presence of Pilate. We don't know exactly what time it was. But good New Testament scholarship seems to indicate that between the hours of 9 o'clock in the morning and by 3 in the afternoon, Jesus was nailed on a cross and died. During those hours, he met four men for the first time, as far as we know. And the first of those four men was Pilate. Pilate was a politician. And I've always had a great deal of sympathy with him. Perhaps it's because I've known a good many politicians and was myself interested in politics. I've just been finished reading this week, H.R. Haldeman's book, The Ends of Power. I've read Leon Jaworski's book, The Right and the Power, and Bernstein's book, uh, Woodard and Bernstein's book, On the Final Days. And you can see the compromising that leads to a moment of crisis and then everything collapses. And here you see it. In Pilate, when he went to sleep that Thursday night, he never dreamed that he would be wakened up before the morning hours and be faced with the Son of God incarnate. He never dreamed that he was going to make a decision that would affect all of destiny. I've just said that a moment ago we have just found out in 1961 his name carved on a piece of stone. You would never have even heard of Pontius Pilate had Jesus not stood before him as his prisoner and had he not interrogated him. But literally billions of people down through the ages have said those same words that you said this morning suffered under Pontius Pilate was crucified, dead and buried. The real facts of history and we play at church. And we play at being Christians. Until, of course, we are confronted with a crisis of suffering or of death. And then we want to Christ who will lull us in our loss, comfort us in our fears, help us out in our troubles. But what about this real discipleship? What's the answer to Pilate's question, what shall I do with Jesus? This is his dilemma. He knew that he was innocent. Politicians know envy. And they use it like a tremendous weapon. One very famous man in politics, whom all of you would know if I called his name, said to me one time when we were speaking about someone else, he said, you know, I wouldn't do a thing for that guy. Except that he's running against a man that I don't like. And he said, I'll help him get him. And that's the way they work. And Pilate knew that it was for envy that they had delivered. Pilate's wife had some kind of dream. Pilate looked at Jesus and he saw in him something that he had never seen in any of the other prisoners that had come before him. There was a candor there that must have delighted the soul of a political guy like him. Because when Jesus said to him, are you the king of the the Jews? Jesus said, yes, you have said that. I am the king of the Jews. Pilate thought. He makes the claim. King of the Jews, look at him. Bruised, sped upon. His wife said, don't have anything to do with him, he's innocent. Pilate started to interrogate him and he said to Jesus, Don't you know that I have the power to crucify you or I have the power to set you free? And Jesus said, you could have no power except it were given to you from above. Pilate said that he had power, but in reality he didn't have power. For there had already gone on so many compromises in his soul that when he came to this moment of crisis, and knew what was right, he wouldn't do it because he wanted to save his job. He would he wanted to have a government pension one day and go back to Aussi off the coast of Rome and build him a beach house and live there. And so he would make short work of what his conscience told him to do. <laughs> then he began to ask him more questions, and to his utter astonishment, Jesus Quit answering his questions. Jesus had told him that my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, then my soldiers would fight. Jesus had told him that he came to bear witness to truth, and he cynically said, what is truth? But he wanted to please his wife, so he thought, I'll have him beaten, and I'll let him go but the crowd kept screaming crucify him. He found what he thought would be a way out when someone happened to mention Herod. Now Pilate remember sends him over to Herod, hoping to wash his hands of Jesus liter- politically and get rid of him by letting Herod make the decision about him. This Herod is the same Herod whose father had all the little babies killed after Jesus had been born in Bethlehem. This Herod is the one who was guilty of incest and adultery, who had been denounced by John the Baptist, and who one night, when a sensual, dancing, naked girl came into the presence of his court, And delighted all the people who were drinking there with her sexual dance. And Herod babbling in his drunkenness said, I'll give you anything you want up to half of my kingdom. And the girl's mother, who hated John the Baptist, said, go back and tell him to give you the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Herod was sorry because he had made this rash promise, but because he wanted to please the crowd that was there, he kept it and he sent a person to cut the head of John the Baptist off and to bring that grisly token of his debauchery to Salome. When Jesus was brought into the presence of Herod, He never said a mumbling word, as the Negro spiritual puts it. We are told in one of the little scripts of the Bible that Herod had desired for a long time to see Jesus because he wanted to see him work some miracle. Are you curious about Jesus? Would you like him to come up here and work some miracle? And would you say to him, if you'll do this, then I'll believe in you. Well, that's exactly the way Herod wanted it. But Jesus doesn't accept people that way. Many people do not discover who Jesus is nor his claims upon their life because they want him on conditions. They, they say they want the will of Christ and they want the will of God. But then when they find out what it is, They want the option of refusing to do it. And you can't have that. His was curiosity. Careless curiosity, that's all. He was not concerned really to have any serious conversation with Jesus. He thought him to be some conjurer of magic. It would be nice to see him do a trick. And when Jesus never spoke a word to the king. Then he let his soldiers do what they wanted to with him. Mock him. Put a crown of thorns on his head. Spit at him. And send him back to Pilate. And Pilate again has him. And he cannot wash away the responsibility although he dramatizes it to the people who are there shouting for his crucifixion and finally he says you go ahead and do what you will but you see to it that I am innocent of the blood of this just man but you can't wash yourself of your decisions which you must make when God has revealed to you what's right. Pilate was a compromiser and a politician Herod was a hardened reprobate to whom Jesus would not speak. I used to have an atheist friend in a university that I went to at West Texas State. And he used to kid me about the old school teacher in whose home I lived, who was a great Christian. And he used to say to me, does Miss Moss still speak to God every morning? And I said, yes. And he said, isn't it strange? God never says anything to me. I was a little brasher then. I said, I don't blame him. (laughs) And uh, when God doesn't speak to you, it's because of judgment. You can hold him aloof to the point that he quits. And the silence of God is the most devastating thing that can happen. If you say, I'm not moved by hymns anymore, scripture doesn't touch me anymore, I'm not gonna be emotional about my religion, I'm not gonna be stampeded into any decision, you better watch out. Your love may grow cold and your heart may grow cold and your inability to make decisions may grow cold. Beware of that. All right, you have two. Let's move quickly to the third person that he meets that day, and who is he? He is called Simon of Cyrene. We believe that he was a black man who was a proselyte to the Jewish faith who had come up there for the Passover feast. He didn't know what was going on. He was simply going down the street, and he heard a crowd of people. And a Roman soldier had the authority to command any of these oppressed Jews to do whatever he told them to. And Jesus apparently fell beneath the weight of his cross because he had been beaten with a whip that had embedded into its leather thongs little bits of metal and stone and bone. And his back was so lacerated that it must have looked like raw hamburger meat. And he fell to the ground bleeding. And he had been up all night, and he couldn't carry that heavy cross. And here is this Simon of Cyrene, probably a black man. And a Roman soldier takes the flat part of his sword and slaps him on the back and says, Pick up his cross. You, pick it up. And I guess Simon must have looked around and said, This is the way we get treated. Always being forced by people like this and he picked up the weight of the cross of Jesus. Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. That's what he had said in the ninth chapter of Luke when he is after the transfiguration, when he begins to speak about discipleship and its cause. It's no cheap grace. Take up your cross and it means to die to self. I talked to a lot of people who contemplate suicide There's one way you can't suicide. You can't nail yourself to a cross. Somebody else will have to do that for you. And yet Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. And Simon, who did not want to, is impressed into service, and he picks up the cross of Jesus. We believe that he became a Christian because later there's a little marginal note in the end of the Gospel of Mark that speaks about a certain Rufus and some relatives of Simon of Cyrene and we believe that he became a believer in the Lord Jesus he bore the weight of his cross maybe you came to church this morning and you didn't really want to come to church and you didn't you don't really know Jesus you could this day walk out of this church being a disciple of Jesus Christ having his grace satisfy for all your sins And having made him Lord over all your life, that could happen today to you. John Wesley went very unwillingly one Wednesday night into a prayer meeting in Aldersgate Street where he heard a Moravian, one of Zinzendorf's followers, reading from Martin Luther's preface to the Epistle to the Romans, describing the change that takes place in one's heart when he is converted and he felt his heart strangely warm. And the Lord God only knows how many people in this whole wide world have had their hearts warmed by John Wesley and the faith that that tiny little Anglican Oxford scholar had when once Christ came into his life for real. Fourthly and lastly, we read about Jesus being crucified with two thieves. You can say really tremendous things to a penitent soul. We do not know who was in charge. Maybe that Roman centurion that was there was the one who picked it out. I I've, I've wondered why he didn't put the two thieves on one side and Jesus on the left. Or why he didn't put the two thieves this way and why did he arrange it just like he did? Or why did he even crucify all three of them together? There would have been a stark dignity about one solitary cross there against the skyline that we could have thought about all down through history. But this was not in the plan of God. Because in Isaiah 53, it says he was numbered with the transgressors. And it's a legal term that means that he was numbered With a bunch of people like you would go get out of the stinking Buncombe County Jail. You ought to go to jail sometime and visit. We've got some wonderful people in our church, Bill and Viwood, who go over to the juvenile evaluation center. But you ought to go into a jail or a penitentiary sometime and visit. See some people who've been wearing the same clothes that they came in there with for weeks. Visit with them. And here, Jesus, the Son of God, is nailed on a cross between two criminals in this despicable way, which caused many in the ancient world to ridicule the idea that the Son of God would be nailed on a cross. At no other point in history is the cross before this time ever become a symbol that anyone would want to wear about their neck. And no other time in history would you have seen any cloth with it woven into it. But Jesus is going to transform all that. One thief is nailed on his right and one on his left, and at first in all of the confusion and the suffering one says to him, if both of them cast the same thing into his teeth and said, We're hurting, why don't you get us down from here if you can do some kind of miracles? But then, as the day began to wear on and the taunts came, one of those thieves began to realize that there was something very, very unusual about this man they were dying by, something that was absolutely godlike. And so he turned to Jesus in the second word from the cross, and he spoke to Jesus a prayer remember, remember me, Lord, when you come into your kingdom. That's all he said. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. He rebuked the other thief for what he had said and said, You and I are suffering what we deserve, but this man had done nothing amiss. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. One Bible teacher said that he had an irate letter from some lady who wrote him about the thief on the cross and said, He is like a great many Christians. He lives out his life to the end and then he blows the candle out and the light is gone and the smoke comes up in God's face. What good did he do? And the Bible teacher wrote back and said he probably has won more people to Christ than any other man in the whole Bible because of the hope that is extended for us there. And never forget this, that thief didn't take the last opportunity he had to accept Jesus. He took the first. And those of us who have Bibles and programs to listen to about the gospel and songs to sing and religious pictures to look at and friends who have talked to us about the Lord will be held a thousand times more accountable. Remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said today... Thou shalt be with me in paradise. Nailed to the cross. He couldn't run any errands for Jesus. Nailed to the cross. His hands couldn't hand anybody anything. All he could do, he did. He said, Lord, remember me. It was an act of courageous faith when you come into your kingdom. Now then, let me close by saying this, that there are people who think that because they suffer, that they can't do something for the Lord. But it's interesting to me that when Jesus was walking healthy and strong in perfect, robust, physical health, healing and helping people up and down all over the places that he went. He still is saving people when he's nailed on a cross. And that thief is going to be the means by which many people are saved too. Pilate had written the first gospel tract without even knowing it. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. God works these situations out that way. And that brings me to this conclusion. That those who also serve. Who only stand and wait. Said the blind poet John Milton. A Christian. But they also serve. Who only lie and suffer. They can be in prayer. And more things are wrought by prayer. Than this world ever dreams of. And God will measure things far differently. Than the way in which we do. And the greatest example of that. That I know and is the story of Charlotte Elliot. Charlotte Elliot wrote the last hymn that we'll sing this morning. Charlotte Elliot was a delicate, sickly sort of preacher who was pensive and retiring and she was born into a home of culture and wealth. And there was from Geneva, Switzerland, a, a Swiss Bible teacher by the name of Caesar Milan, who came and visited in England and Scotland and had a great influence on certain people like Rabbi Duncan in, in Scotland, who later became one of the great Christians. He had an influence on people like Robert Murray McChain, who went to Budapest in Hungary. And there were people converted there, like Alfred Edersheim and Adolf Saffer, great writers on the scriptures, Jewish people who came to faith in Jesus as the Messiah. Well, this Caesar Milan came and visited in Grove House. And while he was there, these people in the Clapham sect, as it was called in London, were very instrumental in doing a lot to change the horrible way in which factory workers were treated and coal miners were treated and women were treated. And, and in the abolishing of slavery and other horrible things that had happened, these great saints of God were at work in the Anglican church, and they were evangelical saints. But it, it was thought improper to ask a personal question about one's faith. And one just didn't do this in certain Anglican circles. And Caesar Milan was visiting in this home, and so he said to Charlotte Eliot one day, because he noticed that she didn't seem to enter into the the Christian activities of the other people of the family, that she was sort of out on the fringe of it, he said to her, are you a Christian? And she turned to him and said, I will thank you to mind your own business. And he said, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to offend you and he asked her forgiveness and thought he would let the matter pass. A few days later, Charlotte Elliott was in the garden of this great home, this estate. She walked over to Caesar Milan and apologized to him for her rude conduct. She realized that he really had only her best interest at heart and she said the truth of the matter was she didn't know whether she was a Christian or not. She said, how does one come to Christ? And Caesar Milan smiled. He said, why, my dear young lady, there's only one way. Four words. Just as you are. And she looked in bewilderment and she said, just as I am, he said yes. She thought about it. She thought about it, and she wanted Christ in her heart. Her bro- Milan left. Her brother began to build a great school called St. Mary's Hall. And years later, when she was forty-five, she had to stay home from some college function that she couldn't attend. And she was thinking about how useless her life had been. And she really wanted Christ to be Lord of it, but she couldn't do anything for him because she was sick all the time. And then she remembered Milan's words, Just as you are. And she thought, Just as I am. And so she picked up a piece of paper and she wrote down the words of that 272nd hymn in your hymn book. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am in waiting not to rid my soul of one dark blot to thee whose blood can cleanse each spot, O Lamb of God, I come. Think about a lamb. John Smathers gave his testimony here the other day and I remember after his conversion he sent me a Christmas card and on the Christmas card there was a cradle of a little baby and by that cradle there was a red lamb and in back of it was a cross that that baby in Bethlehem would be the lamb of God that would go to the cross. Just as I am, though tossed about with many a conflict, many a doubt, fightings and fears within, without, O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am, thy love unknown has broken every barrier down. Now to be thine, yea, thine alone, O Lamb of God, I come. Look at the fourth stanza, how many things are put in it. Just as I am, thou wilt do what? Wilt receive, welcome, welcome. Pardon, cleanse, relieve because of what? Thy promise, I believe, O Lamb of God, I come. Charlotte Elliott died and her brother had her funeral. And he said, poor Charlotte thought that she never really did anything for the Lord. And probably more people have come to faith in Jesus Christ through the singing of this hymn. any other hymn that's ever been sung we're going to stand and sing it and if you've never accepted Christ as your Savior I want to invite you to walk the aisle and accept him you don't have to walk an aisle sign a card or raise your hand to become a Christian these are indications of a faith faith is what saves you believing in the promise of God but if you would like to do that I want to give you that opportunity then I want to talk with you after the service. Receive the benediction. And now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, to whom be all glory, honor, honor, Dominion and power, now and forevermore.